0: amen amen good morning everybody welcome to valley baptist church if you have your bibles you can open up to luke chapter 18 verse 31 luke chapter 18 verse 31 we're continuing our study through the gospel of luke and as you're turning there i'm gonna do something different today most saturdays i kind of review with anna i kind of talk through it and often she kind of nods and kind of says okay okay other times she's like, ah, might want to rethink that one. Last night, that's yeah, a good wife, you know. <laughs> Last night, she, after I finished, she's like, "Okay, you gotta like help me like piece it together a little bit better." And I was like, "Well, what do you think if I like start with the conclusion?" She's like, "I actually think that would be helpful." And so today I'm going to start with the conclusion. We're doing communion today, and I. The story, there's about four different parts that you could take each of them individually, and often people do, but I feel that they really kind of are strung together. All of them together kind of make sort of a a cohesive point. If we go back to Luke, we're not going to go, well, back to Luke, back to Luke chapter one, which we will do. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give you guys the ending, and then we'll start at the beginning. And hopefully through that, it'll all kind of, this line that goes through these four stories will make more sense to us as they all kind of relate to taking communion. That's where we're going. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help me uh, to speak clearly, Lord, to, um, that my words would come out correctly, uh, that you would um, help this story to come alive. Lord, as we um, in this story of Luke, as we near Jerusalem and as we near uh, Jesus' crucifixion, Father, I pray that you would help this story to come alive, Lord, that we would understand what happened some 2,000 years ago in this context. Um, Father, we pray that your spirit would help us to understand rightly. And Father, as we read and study through these passages, Lord, we pray, Lord, that your spirit would um, soften our hearts, Lord, that you would um, help us to hear your voice, that we would humble ourselves before you, Lord, as we prepare to take communion, uh, Lord, I pray that you would draw us close to you. Um, Lord, help us to repent and confess our sin to you. Uh, Lord, we desire to, to know you and to walk with you closely. We love you, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to back up. Hold your spot in Luke chapter 18. I want you to go to Luke chapter 1, the very beginning. Luke, he is not a Jewish man. He was not present during any of the stories that he wrote about. He was a physician by trade, but history records him as being one of the greatest historians because of the work he did in writing Luke and Acts. If you take Luke's works, he writes more of the New Testament than any author. Most people think that it's Paul. Paul wrote many books in the new testament but luke if you just count his words he most like the quantity wise luke um, conveys the most information to us and in luke chapter one verses one through four we get the opening sort of purpose of his writings it really is the opening statement for the gospel of luke and for the book of acts There really it's a there's a series of two books that he wrote and he finished luke he sent that on and then he began writing acts and when he finished acts he sent that on to Theophilus. And so in Luke chapter 1 verse 1 we read this, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order most excellent theophilus so that you would know the exact truth about the things you've been taught you can flip back to Luke chapter 18 so when Luke opens up his writing he says man I investigated I researched I interviewed I met with people tradition holds that all of the apostles that were alive at the time of his writing he interviewed them he interviewed Mary Jesus's mother And he got all of this information because he was on a quest of his own to determine who Jesus was. Once he got it, then there was this man, Theophilus. And so he wrote out this letter in consecutive order, making a point to show who Jesus was, what happened historically and the significance of it. So every time we open up the Gospel of Luke or Acts, we know that we know the purpose and it fits somehow into it. And so when I look at the story today... We're going to start with the first story. Jesus pulls the 12 aside. He tells them that everything that they know about the Son of Man is going to be fulfilled, that he's going to, he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. He's going to be executed. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise on the third day. As he tells this story, he's, they're going to bump into a man who is blind. Jesus is going to heal this blind man. From the blind man, they enter into the town, and Zacchaeus, a very wealthy man, is going to be present, wants to see Jesus. He humbles himself before Jesus, and Jesus says, salvation today has come to his house. As this story unfolds, it's not they're not stagnant in one place, but this is the map of Israel. Um, this is the Jordan River coming down. We've zoomed in. The story is moving through Jericho. They enter into Jericho. They go through Jericho, and then they get close to Jerusalem. As they're getting close to Jerusalem, Jesus sees their, their excitement building. And the, the fourth and final story is a parable that Jesus tells, because the apostles, they were they were missing kind of what was happening. They were looking beyond what was going to happen. So he tells them this parable of a king who came to this place, he gets his people that are subjects to him, he gives them money, and he tells them to manage it. As he leaves town, there's people that chase after him that don't want to be his subjects, and they hate him. They don't want anything to do with him. Eventually, the king comes back and then gives an accounting to those that he entrusted resources to, and he's going to hold those that didn't want to be under his headship. He's going to hold them accountable. And it's a parable to kind of explain to them the death, burial, and resurrection. Hopefully, it'll make more sense when we go through it. But that's, that's the cliff notes up front. We're going to end with communion. Between the rich man and the, and the blind man, we see this spectrum of humanity. The blind man would be on the far extreme, being the cast out in society, worthless in society. Then you have Zacchaeus, who is essentially like the Bill Gates in their society. He was so, so wealthy and yet Jesus reaches the two of these men and everybody in between that the gospel is for all people as as he enters in Larry's hmm uh, got me distracted because I'm like oh right i i <laughs> i made sense uh, i got one person so far that's good that's good <laughs> all right <clears throat> And so when we take communion, we're reminded of like that Jesus came. His, these crackers represent his broken body. He's going to the cross to die, to, to pay the penalty of sin for all people. We, we reflect on that. We reflect on our own lives, our own sin. If you haven't trusted in Christ, it's an opportunity for you to come to know Jesus as Savior through believing. We confess our own sins to restore our relationship with God. We're also told... See, this whole parable of the talents. See, Jesus was leaving. He was going to take off. He came from heaven. He was on earth. He fulfilled his mission. He left, but he's coming back. And in that time where we are, the one day we're going to stand before him, as these people did, and they're going to give an account. And as we take communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're told that as often as we take this, we're to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so the th- the third and final point of today's message is like, what's your part in the Great Commission? Like, what's your part? So now you guys know where we're ending. You guys just want to take communion now, or do we want to work through it? No, we're... Before you answer, we're going to work through it. I voted. We're... So the story begins here. Verse 31. We read, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, We are going up to Jerusalem. And all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. So he pulls them aside. They're getting ready to go up. No matter how you enter Jerusalem, you always go up. It's a a city on a mountain surrounded by mountains. And so they're going to go up to it. And Jesus tells them, all the things which are written about the prophets, about the Son of Man, they're going to happen. Man, they are so excited if we fast forward to verse 11 of chapter 19 he's going to tell them the parable the reason it says when jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of god was going to appear immediately well of course they did jesus just said everything you've read about in the prophets is about to happen now what did they read about what did they know? The first place I want you to do is to go back towards the front of the Bible to Daniel. It's only a couple books. Uh, you know, it's a little bit ways. Your your table of contents will tell you right where it is. And in Daniel chapter 7, this is one of the greatest prophetic chapters of the whole Bible. Here's Daniel under captivity. He has this great vision. And in verse chapter 7, verse 13 of Daniel... He's already seen this vision of all of these nations coming up out of the waters. They were animals. Then all of a sudden, the ancient of days, the father appears. And in verse 30 or 13, excuse me, Daniel says this. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days. So Christ comes to the father and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So when they heard of the Son of Man coming, the prophets, what the prophets said is that when the Messiah comes, all people are going to bow down before him and worship him. And he's going to have a kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever. To the Jewish people at this time, they liked that. They were under Roman authority. They had been beaten down. Many of their rights had taken away. And they were longing to be free. They were longing for their Messiah to restore everything. Now, if you turn back to Luke, stop at, um, what do we stop at? I'm blanked on Zechariah. So in Zechariah, you'll pass Habakkuk, you'll pass some minor prophets. Right after Habakkuk, you'll see Zephaniah, and then Haggai, and then you'll see Zechariah. And in Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 4, is another great prophecy that they would have waited to see. And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half towards the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. In that day, there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day. That's the understatement of today, (laughs) which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that evening. Time there will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. And so what this says is if you're standing here looking towards the temple, this says that there's going to be a huge earthquake, and that mountain is going to split in half so that you would essentially do the splits. There's a bunch of graves here. This is in the kind of the Palestinian region of Jerusalem right now. They're burying people all along here. These are all tombs. There's some old like King David, Zechariah. They're all buried in this region. They think there's no way that the Messiah can enter in because this is unholy ground. Well, what's going to happen, what the scriptures tells us is that it's going to be this huge divide. The earth is going to be separated. That waters are going to spout up in a river. I don't know how many gallons of water, but just here you go down underground, and there's Hezekiah's tunnel where water is already spewing up, hundreds of gal- I mean, hundreds of thousands of gallons of water is down there. they've discovered, and water will spout up. So going back to Luke, in Luke chapter 18, when Jesus pulls the twelve aside, and he said to them, "Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem." And all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. This is the image that comes to their mind. So do you think these guys are a little bit excited? Like their journey, they've seen Jesus heal all sorts of people. All sorts of things. Raising people from the dead. Establishing that he's God. And they're like, this is, we are so close. Go back to the last slide. They are in... Jericho moving towards Jerusalem and the excitement is like overtaking them. You think like Christmas Eve is a big deal. Imagine them. And then all of a sudden, in verse 32, Jesus throws a total curveball at them that they just don't understand. Jesus says in his most explicit words to this point in the gospel, he explains his death, burial and resurrection in clear terms. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. That image does not fit with their expectation of the son of man's coming, which is yet to come. And I read this and it's clear that they did not understand. But it's not because of my great discernment of the scriptures. It's because I read verse 34. (laughs) Verse 34 says, but the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. Remember, Luke interviewed all these guys after the fact. He met with all of them. He's piecing together the story so that he can write the gospel of Luke and Acts with great detail. And when they got to this part of the story, like, man, in hindsight, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I don't know if they used that saying back then, but we use it now. Like, man, he told us that he was going to die. Isaiah 53 predicts all of this. But we never, we just kind of skimmed over Isaiah 53. To this day, if you have the opportunity to talk to a Jewish rabbi, like I've talked to a couple Jewish rabbis. I said, hey, what's your, just like, not even combative. Just like, how do you understand Isaiah 53? They won't even talk about it. They won't talk about it. And I had a seminary professor. He was, really, he was the funniest guy. He had a stroke. After his stroke, he still knew like a hundred times more than me. He spoke like five different languages and he was in New York. He would drive a limo at night during like the, the midnight shift just because he wanted to be able to stay in touch with, with uh, non-believers so he could witness to people. He was hilarious. I wish I could remember his name. And he's like, Yeah, I was in New York City, the best bagel shop of all New York City, all Jewish. And I would go in there, not combat. I would just talk to them and ask them about Isaiah 53. I'd bring it in and start talking. He's like, about a month into it, they banished me from the bagel shop and I was like I was like they say the best bagels in all of New York City and I still to this day am not allowed in there because I want to know how they understood Isaiah fifty-three. It's in there that he would suffer, but it's all kind of merged together. It's easy for us looking back, but they didn't quite get it. But Jesus is telling them, I'm going to give my life. Why? We take communion. We're going to take communion to remember that his body was broken, bloodied, that the weight of our sin was placed upon him who knew no sin because of his great love and that he wanted to restore his people to him, that we have this relationship That as he walked down that hill and he would enter in the garden of Gethsemane and he would pray, Father, let this cup pass from me. That he would be in so much agony that as he's sweating, that his capillaries would, blood would explode into the sweat and he'd sweat blood. That this great agony, Gethsemane, which means press, was waiting down upon him, knowing what he was going to, all because of his great love. And in the midst of this, they're still approaching Jericho. Verse 35, as Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. This this guy does not have a sight. Totally blind. In this culture, he's he's a beggar on the side of the road. There's absolutely nothing that he could do. There's no social security. There's no safety net. All he could do was beg. He is on the very extreme edge of their society. People would walk past him, ignore him. We don't know homeless people like this in the the United States. But if you leave the United States and you see homeless people, they're like this. So maybe in a few cases, we do have some people like this. But this guy's in his right mind. All he is is blind, helpless, begging. And as he's there begging, he can hear this crowd passing by. Now, hearing the crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. Hey, hey, what is that? I can hear a lot of people. What's going on? Is there a parade? It's no holiday today. What is going? What are all these people doing passing? I can hear the commotion. I can hear all of the excitement. And somebody responded to him in verse 37. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Jesus had a reputation. Jesus at 12 years old at the temple sparring with the theological heavyweights of their society. Everybody who knew everything about the scripture, Jesus is a snotty-nosed little kid at the temple asking them questions that they can't answer. Like, he had a reputation. He's God. He knew everything. He knew the law. He wrote the law. The law is his. He fulfilled it. He's challenging them at 12. He's healing people when his ministry happened. All of this stuff is going on. He, everybody knew who Jesus of Nazareth is. And when this blind man hears it, all he can do is start screaming for Jesus. Big crowd, one guy screaming, I don't know that, you know, is he even going to stop and consider him? Verse 38, what's he calling out? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he's going to say that same phrase in 39. Son of David, have mercy on me. When people encounter Jesus, we've seen it in the most recent chapters, that when this guy who has nothing, all he's screaming out is, Have mercy on me. Mercy is withholding wrath that you deserve. All he's saying is, with, Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And what happens in verse 39? The people that are around and the people in the caravan hear this This. Poor blind man who looks pitiful on the side of the road, screaming out to Jesus, Have mercy on me. What do they say? Will you be quiet? Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And there is a man in our church, Jackie and Ray Moore. He's got macular degeneration. He's, he's going blind. He's begging for our prayers. And, and him sitting there going over this, he was the only guy in the whole church that truly understand this guy's crying out. He had like tears in his eyes. And he wants our prayers. Be praying for Ray that he could get his vision back. See, we're going to see that this guy didn't, he wasn't born without his vision. He lost his vision is my understanding. And they tell him, be quiet, stop calling out. And all he does is start screaming louder, son of David, have mercy on me. And I love this picture here. He wants nothing more than to meet Jesus, that Jesus would see him and take notice of him. And the people around him, there's this resistance. Don't bug Jesus. Jesus doesn't care about you. And if you live your life and you want to live for Jesus and you want to get to know Jesus, I guarantee you, you're going to experience resistance. If you're not, like, see, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I never really worked in a Christian environment. Well, now I'm a pastor, so I kind of work in a Christian environment. (laughs) So so I intentionally inject myself in non-Christian environments. There are people like the parable Over in verse 14, I believe it is, of chapter 19, in the parable that Jesus said, But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And there are those people in our lives that don't know Christ, that want nothing to do with him, and your calling out to him, your living for him, is going to bring nothing but resistance from them because they hate him. There's resistance. But this guy doesn't give up. He doesn't care about the resistance. He only cares about Jesus. He doesn't care if he looks like a fool sitting on the road screaming out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet. You're going to bother him. Well, then he just screams louder. And I love this picture of Jesus. Always time for a distraction, the least of these. Here's this guy that nobody cares about. Jesus easily could have kept walking like everybody else. That we see Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. He didn't say, hey, you come walk over to me. The guy did not have that ability. Hey, go get that guy. Bring him over to me. And when he came near, Jesus questioned him. What do you want me to do for you? I love it. He's acting like he's like, well, he's been screaming out. Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. (laughs) What do you want me to do? And the guy said, Lord. I want to regain my sight. I want to regain my sight. I want to be able to work. I want to be able to see stuff. And Jesus says to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. It's a beautiful picture. This guy had absolutely nothing to offer Jesus. And Jesus answered his prayer. The guy stands up, he immediately is giving him praise, starts walking with him. Jesus' crowd of people gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And he enters Jericho, and now this guy on the other end of the spectrum, he entered into Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man by the name of Zacchaeus. If you weren't here last week, you missed me singing the kid's song. I'm not going to do it again. You can listen to the CD if you want. Just don't put it on YouTube. It'll be very embarrassing to me. I shouldn't have said that. Now I put it. Yeah, I know. (laughs) So there's this man, Zacchaeus. Now, he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. This is a second understatement of the day. He wasn't a tax collector would have been rich. He was a chief tax collector. So he oversaw. He was super wealthy. We're going to see this story. He's going to give away half of everything that he had and every person that he might have wronged he's going to repay them four times what he wronged them. And he's still going to have plenty of wealth. He is super rich. He is super hated. Those that were tax collectors, they were Jewish. The Jewish people viewed them as betraying the Jewish people because now they were working for Rome, extorting money from the Jewish people. Whatever they could take, they could keep, minus what they had to give to Rome. So They only had to give so much to Rome, but the more they could extort out of people, the richer they got, and he got very rich. Now Now Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was able because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. Man, he's a short guy, and I totally re- relate to that. I mean, if you ever get stuck in a lobby with the Fredericks boys, I mean, I just feel like, man, you guys, you guys must have ate your Wheaties or something. Like, I like something. Like, I'm just short. And Zacchaeus is this wealthy man with all this power, but he's, a sh- he's vertically challenged. And he, he wants to see Jesus, but because of the crowd, he can't like is he like jumping like man maybe i stand on the table i can see it he can't see him he's like okay well i see that the crowd is going this way down the street maybe if i sprint down there there's a huge sycamore tree and if i climb up that sycamore tree maybe then i'll be able to see jesus all he wants to do is to see jesus doesn't really give much more about zacchaeus other than he wants to get a glimpse of him verse four so he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him for he was about to pass through that way when jesus came to the place he looked up and said to him zacchaeus hurry and come down for today i must stay at your house Now check this out jesus has this huge entourage of people all around him there's noise he's passing through he looks up in the tree and he says hey you come down no he says zacchaeus Was Zacchaeus wearing a little, hello, my name is Zacchaeus. Like, you know, like when you go to little parties, you know, and you got to put your little name tag on. Jesus knew who he was. He looks at him. Says, Zacchaeus, come down. You got the biggest spread in town. I need a place for all these people to sleep tonight. It's getting dark. Come on down. Zacchaeus comes on down. And it says in verse 6, and he hurried And came down and received him gladly. Literally, that word is rejoicing. Like, Jesus and all his cronies are coming to my place. This is awesome. Like, the guy I want to see, I have him all night at my place to talk to him, to pick his brain. He's super excited. Jesus doesn't say anything more that we're aware of. Verse 7, it says, When they saw it, they began to grumble. Who's the they? Everybody who knew Zacchaeus. They hated him. They hated them. A tax collector you didn't have to keep your word with. A tax collector wasn't allowed to give their money in the synagogue. They were hated. When we see tax collector, the way the people, he was rich and he was totally on the upper echelon of society. But the Jewish people, the way they felt about him, it would be like, imagine if we suddenly knew that a known child predator or child molester was going to start coming to church. Do you think we'd all be sitting like this? I'd be calling all my my law enforcement buddies and saying, hey, guys, there's a guy in church. I need you to sit in all the six seats just around him. If he goes to the bathroom, can you guys just keep a little bubble around him? If he don't let him go down the hallway, I got two daughters. Like, we would not, like, you know, there's love and grace and forgiveness. But I'm trying to draw out how our feelings would be. He was not like, I don't know if he was even allowed in the synagogue. he certainly could not give his money. Nobody had to keep their word with him. His family would have denied that he was related to them because it was so shameful. And now Jesus is going to go hang out at his place and they start grumbling. Jesus is going to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Of course he is. If, if you've paid attention, even remotely in Luke, you've seen that this is his custom. He did not come. Well, what's it? See, this is my Bible memory. Sick. There you go, Larry. He didn't come to save the righteous, but the sick. And he's not implying that there's like 20% of us who are righteous that enter in. He's implying that we're all sick. He hangs out with the religious. He hangs out with the unrighteous. Everybody, they all need a savior. And, And they're grumbling. And as they're grumbling, Zacchaeus, God's already working in his heart. Jesus doesn't talk to him or address him like the, the, the young ruler in last week's chapter. They said, oh, there's one thing that you're missing. Sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. The said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Jesus doesn't say this to this guy. Jesus says, hey, I need a place to crash. You need to put us all up. Zacchaeus is super stoked. And as he's going there, Zacchaeus announces in verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded of anyone of anything, I will give it back four times as much. That's an amazing transformation. That Zacchaeus, that God worked in his heart. It wasn't, you have to give all. Like he said, I want to give half. I want, this is what I want to do. I know I've been wrong and this is how I'm going to make amends. And Jesus looks and he says to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. That might not seem significant to us, but imagine the crowd. They were grumbling against him. They hated him. He was effect- effectively excommunicated from the Jewish people. He was hated by them. And Jesus says, today salvation has come because this brother here is a child of Abraham, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save. That's what's lost. And it's awesome that we see this picture of That, that God is searching out each one of us. We've already heard him tell the parable of the lost, the lost coin, the lost son, and the lost sheep. That he says that when these lost ones are recovered, when they come back, there's a party in heaven. That his whole purpose was, re, was to... Get back those which are lost. And he says that I've come to seek and save the lost. And this man, Zacchaeus, was lost. This blind man was lost. And this is the whole purpose of my coming is to save that which was lost. And while they were listening to these things, that these things are that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus went on to tell a parable. Man, these guys are getting excited. They see a blind man healed. They see a chief tax collector who is like hated by everybody, was uber, uber rich. Just give away all of his stuff, put them all, all up. They're marching to, to Jerusalem. They're getting super close. They're like, this is going to be awesome. Maybe when we roll into town, because the way they came into town from Jericho was on the backside from the east into Jerusalem. So they would have approached that way. Maybe when he gets to the Mount of Olives, we're going to see this big earthquake. Maybe this is where he establishes his throne. When's it going to happen? Jesus is like, "And you guys, didn't you hear all about the death, burial, and resurrection of me? You're getting far ahead of yourselves. Maybe if I tell it in a different way, you'll get the picture. And so he tells this parable, verse 11, because he was near Jerusalem And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Let's pause there. So Jesus tells this parable. There's this nobleman. He came from a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself. And then he returned. Jesus is telling the parable out of himself. Here, Jesus is God in heaven. He incarnates himself. He becomes man. To earth he lives 33 years then he's going to depart the death burial resurrection he's going to rise again he's going to depart he wants them to begin to understand this they've got prophecy all garbled together and he's trying to further illuminate the scripture that they would understand through the story so he tells this nobleman he came from a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. So he pulls these slaves, he gives them money, a bunch of money. He says, I'm going away, I'm going back to where I came from. Here are these resources. Use these resources to the best of your ability. I'm going to come back and then we'll kind of touch base then. Verse 14, but his citizens, these are different people, they hated him. And they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And so as the nobleman talks to his people, gives him the money, he starts leaving. Then all of the people that hated him chase after him and said, hey, we hate you and we don't want you to rule over us. There are plenty of people that are saying that to Jesus today. Verse 15, the whole point of this parable is, When he had returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. So he fast forwards, he returns, he calls back the people that he given money to. He's going to see how they've done. See, when we take communion, one of the things that we're instructed to do for as often as we take this, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I don't know what God was thinking. I could probably just stop at that. <laughs> but to harness in it a little bit, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 makes it very clear that Jesus, after he departed, he like entrusted those that followed after him to be his ambassadors, to basically head up the ministry of reconciliation, that those who know and love God, it's their job to bring those that don't know love God to in to reconciliation with God, that they would p- put their hands together. And one day we're going to give an account. Like God's each given us certain gifts and talents. And he's wired each of us in different ways. And I can't really answer how God's wired you and what your part is in fulfilling the the Great Commission. I can't tell you I'm kind of terrified because there's plenty of verses for me as a pastor that I'm accountable to how you live out your life. On Tuesday night, we had a board meeting at Alternatives we've been trying to increase the board and there's a guy who is a very successful businessman he, um, he he wants to join the board he has a long standing relationship with the board making donations and at the end of the night we kind of said no what's your like what's your story why are you here he started talking and by the end he had all of us crying He's like, yeah, I did all this business. I was an engineer. I, I, I started a bunch of companies that were all very quite successful. And I could tell by when he says quite successful, his quite successful is beyond what I can even like comprehend successful. And he's like, I retired and I did quite well. And, and after I retired, I got very good at bridge. I think that's cards, right? Playing bridge. And he said that he was a master bridge player and he can smoke anybody playing bridge. He said he just mastered it Took a couple years. And then one day, he, re- he referenced this passage. He said, I was just kind of praying and asking the Lord, like, is this what you want of me? To smoke people at bridge? Because I'm really good at bridge and I can smoke people at bridge. I can, there's nobody I can't beat at bridge. And he's like, eh, I pretty much felt like God was saying, this isn't what life is all to be. And so he said, I, he's like, I had to retire from bridge. And I just began praying and asking God, like, what, I want to finish strong. Like whatever I have is yours. I wanna run this race to the end. And he's this guy's like approaching like probably he's probably close to eighty, maybe between seventy and eighty. He's like, I'm gonna finish strong. And he's like, When I die, I wanna stand before my Lord and hear him say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And by this point, we're like welcome to the board, welcome to where do we have to vote now? Like like we're like And this is the whole point of this parable. Like he's going to tell some stuff and let's work through it. So the first person appeared, the master comes back. The first person appeared saying, okay, master, your mina has made 10 times more. She said, here's your 10 mina that you gave me. Here's 10 more. I doubled it. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing." You are to be in authority over ten cities. Okay, in my kingdom, I'm going to place you in charge. You've shown yourself to be very faithful. I'm going to give you ten cities to kind of govern. Verse 18, the second one came saying, your mina master has made five minas. Okay, here's your ten mina. I was able to, to get 50% return. Here's uh, five minas. And then he responds and said to him, after you... And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. Okay, the last guy got multiplied it by ten. You multiplied it by five. I'm going to put you over five cities. Verse 20, the third one came in saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I'm an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? Having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina from him and give it to the one that has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given But from the one who does not have, even what he does not have shall be taken away. Let's pause there. Let's kind of look at this. What's going on here? One guy did really good. One guy had lukewarm porridge and one guy was cold. The guy that was cold, he said, take what he had, give it to the guy that had everything. Because who is showing himself faithful with a little? I'm going to give more. To put this in practical terms, let's pretend I had three people. That were my slaves i give them each brand new shovels and i say you know what i want you to dig holes out there three foot holes i want you to in the lower lot i want you to just a straight line of holes three feet deep go all the way i'm going to be back in a week just use the shovel put it to use okay we'll come back we'll, we'll check base so then i come back the first guy he's like hey here's your shovel it's a little beat up i have 50 holes three foot deep all the way down Come back to the second guy. Second guy says, I got 25 holes dug all the way down. Here's shovel back. Third guy says, man, this is a brand new shovel. I was afraid you'd get upset if I scratched it on the front or something by digging holes. So I just kind of put it in the shed, took very good care of it, and here's it back. To put it into like common term, use it or lose it. So if this guy's not going to use the shovel to dig holes, I'm going to give it to the guy that dug 50 holes because he's using it. Peter says in his letters, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The idea is that when God saves you, we're told that you're given at least a gift to use for his purposes, to work for the greater goal of his mission. The working out your, your salvation with true salvation has nothing to do with earning your salvation. It has everything to do with that God has wired you to be used in his big picture. We're all different. We all have our own gifts, but he wants us to use it. He doesn't want us to be that piece of exercise equipment that we bought on January 1st, watching late night television, that we're going to lose all of this weight and be in great shape one year from now. We buy it, we put it together, we maybe use it once, and then we shove it under our bed, and it's got cobwebs all over it. Amen? We all know what we're talking about. He wants us to, he's gifted us, he's equipped us, he he wants us to be used by him. And one day we're going to stand before him and he's going to say, okay, this is what I gave you. How did you put it to use? And we as Christians, this isn't about going to heaven or hell. This is about standing before him and honoring him. I'll never forget my Greek and Hebrew teacher, Thomas Rom. He was, he entered the ministry at like 59. He's passionate about Hebrew and Greek, like languages. He blows me away i had a hebrew test i studied i nailed it i knew i nailed it i knew i had hundred percent but then he always would have five extra questions for extra credit i knew i got hundred percent i wanted to go get a pepsi so i just stopped and i didn't fill in the five questions Flipped my test over, went and got a Pepsi, waited for everybody else to finish. And then at the end of the exam, after we graded it in class, and he kind of went through and looked at him. He's like, Gunnar, why didn't you do the last five? I'm like, Thomas, I got 100%. And he looked at me and he's like, you know, Gunnar, you you are a very good student. And I really expected, I, I wouldn't expect this out of you. And I was just like, it was like your grandpa, like, oh, man, I, I'm so sorry, Thomas. I, did, I thought I got 100%. I thought, like, and he wasn't demeaning, but he's like, man, I thought you'd want to do this to master learning Hebrew because you need to learn the language for what you're. And so I, I kind of think that that's what standing before the Lord is like, I've given this to you. How have you used it? Oh, you know what? I shoved it under my bed and I didn't use it. And so I really think communion, a huge element when we take communion as we reflect first on what Jesus did for us. That any relationship that we have from God is totally because of him. But then we also take it, well, he saved us and now he wants us to be used by him. And not only does he want you to be used by him, but he's gifted you and called you specifically. He's, He's placed you in relationships with people. And he wants you to be his ambassador. And then there's verse 27. It has nothing to do with interpretation. It's pretty clear. And we're still in the parable. There's a lot of things in the scriptures that people say, oh, well, I don't understand what it means. We understand what it means. We just don't like what it says. <laughs> this, is, this is one of those. He's still in the parable. So now he's talked to his, his people. He's kind of divvied out their giftings. He's kind of talked to them. But remember the people in verse 14 that chased after him and said, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. These are the people in question at this point, verse 27. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. That doesn't sound very Jesus-y to me. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like, was it clear? Did it make sense to everybody? Did we like it? No. <laughs> it's like, what is this? Now, if you remember, if we back up a couple pages to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, somewhere in the middle there. Verse 20 is where it starts. The Pharisees came and they said they want to know when the kingdom of God is going to come. He didn't really answer them. He kind of said, oh, you're not going to be able to see it. Then he pulls the disciples and said, and he starts telling them like, Pictures like telling him, like, you know, what you're going to long for the Son of Man to come, but you're never going to see it. You're going to cry out and you're never going to see it. Then he says that he talks about the days of Noah. Remember the days of Noah that there were some, some were taken and some remained. And then he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, some were taken and some remained. In both of those stories, the people taken were taken off to destruction. Those Noah remained with his family and and so, well, who is What's his name? A lot. He remained. He said, oh, remember his wife who looked back longing after the old life and she turned into a pillar of salt. Jesus gives us, there's going to be two people at the grinding mill. One's going to be taken. One's going to be left. There's going to be two people asleep. One's going to be taken. One's going to be left. And then the poor guys in verse 37 of chapter 17 say, and answering, they said to him, where, Lord? Like, where are they going? Like, we're not following you. Where where are they going? And then Jesus says, and he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. That their body is going to be dying, rotting flesh in the vultures. Not very fun to think about. And in chapter 19, Jesus kind of just leaves us hanging here. And it says and he, after he said these things he was going ahead, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So he's getting close to Jerusalem. From this point, we'll probably start with that verse next week. I learned during the last service, I'm not very a liturgical person, but I knew next week is a significant liturgical day. It's Palm Sunday, the week before Easter. you would have think, I was just totally accidental. But we're going to go into the triumphal entry. The story goes right from there. Him entering into Jerusalem to suffer, to die, to be buried, to rise again on the third week. On the third week, the third day. (laughs) Files got changed in my brain. And so he kind of leaves it. He's trying to let them see that, listen, you're getting prophecy intertwined in your head. And it's not going to work out. And you're not going to understand until after it happens. After it happens, I'm going to leave the spirit with you. And the spirit will give you understanding. And so as we look at the story, going back to the conclusion with where we started. The first thing I see in this as we take communion. The gospel is for all people. Everybody. If you're a human Jesus came and he died for you. And explaining the gospel, I'd have you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter um, 15. And here the gospel is clearly laid out. As we take communion, we're celebrating Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Chapter 15, verse 1 says, this is Paul speaking. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ, this is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. From Genesis 3-3 all the way through the Old Testament, you see shadows of the that Christ is going to die and pay the penalty for sin that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures. All of this was prophetically told before it happened. Paul then goes on to say, after this happened, after he raised from the dead, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, and after he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom were, remain until now but some have fallen asleep he says listen after jesus rose from the grave he didn't do it in secret he walked around all of these people saw him in fact he stood in front of 500 people that were able to touch him and to feel him and if you don't believe what i'm saying most of those 500 people are still alive at the time of writing you can go talk to them and investigate them and ask them what they saw was it really true and they would confirm everything that paul's saying And then he goes on to verse 7, and he appeared to James. Now, who's James? That's Jesus' little brother. James wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He He didn't buy any of his teaching until after his death, burial, and resurrection. And when he rose from the grave, James changed his perspective. The resurrection changed everything. And James went on to be the leader of the church. Then to all the apostles and last of all to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of all the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Here's Paul the Apostle. Paul was a Pharisee. He was one of the top-notch Pharisees. He studied under Gamaliel, the most elite rabbi that was available. He had all kinds of money. He was from Turkey. He was born a citizen of Rome. He was killing those who professed Jesus to be Lord. And then one day, Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, and Paul's whole world was turned upside down, or really right side up. And Paul says, this is true. And then Paul gave his whole life telling of the truth of Jesus. And so when we take communion, we're remembering his broken body that these broken crackers represent his body on the cross that was nailed, beaten, bloodied. Every stripe he bore was for our sins. That he conquered the grave, he rose. That the Jews is new life. We reflect on the cross. We remember what he did and we look forward. For as often as we take this, we proclaim the Lord's death. And ultimately, if you're a believer in Christ, the question we have to answer is what's our part in the Great Commission? I don't know what that is for you. The first thing that we all can do is to begin praying for our friends, family members, people we work with, that we would see people through God's eyes. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you just for our study of... um, the gospel of Luke and just this time that we're able to spend with Jesus and the history of his time here on earth. Father, I thank you to end this story that we see this poor blind man and this rich crooked man kind of embodying the spectrum of humanity. And Lord, we thank you that when you were on that cross or even before the foundation of the world, you considered me. I thank you that your love is so great that you desire each one of us to come to you and to worship you, to bow down, to accept you as Savior. I pray for our friends and family, maybe that are even with us today, that haven't come to the place of trusting in you as Savior. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would help them uh, to connect whatever dots they need to reach out by faith as this blind man did. Father, we pray that as we take communion, you would... Just help us, Lord, to to come to the foot of the cross again, to lay down our junk. We thank you, Lord, that um, through your righteousness, we're made pure. And Lord, as we take this communion, we pray that you would help us to be burdened for our friends and family and loved ones, Lord, who don't know you. And they may be resisting you, and they may be persecuting us for the faith that we've proclaimed. But Lord, I pray that you would help us not to lose heart. That we would grow close to you day by day. We love you, Father. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.